Hello and welcome to The Long Short, a new podcast brought to you by AIMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, focusing on the very latest insights on hedge funds and private credit. My name is Tom Keogh. AIMA is the global representative of the alternative investment industry with around 2,000 corporate members spread across 60 countries. Of these, our fund manager members account for approximately $2.5 trillion in hedge fund and private credit assets. Each weekly episode of The Long Short will examine topical areas of interest from across the alternative investment universe, news, views, and analysis delivered by AIMA's global team, as well as a host of industry experts. So whether you're a hedge fund or a private credit industry veteran, a student of the industry, or just someone interested in learning more about hedge funds and private credit, this podcast will be your ideal companion to help navigate you through the long and short of this fascinating industry. Welcome to episode 18 of The Long Short. Inflation levels being above a few percentage points has not been a real concern in, in well over 30 years. It had been assumed that high inflation was a thing of the past, yet it came back with a vengeance over the past year. And inflation rates are now at 7.5% in the US and expected to reach similar levels in the UK later this spring. And now economists are debating what to do about it. And joining us today to discuss all of this is one of Man Group's esteemed investment analysts, Henry Neville. Henry, welcome to The Long Shore. Thanks very much, Julian Tom. Great to be here. So just to take uh, England or the UK even as an uh, example, the Bank of England aims to keep inflation at around 2% and in fact has to write a letter to the Chancellor of the Exchequer once it goes over that threshold. We now are in a situation where it's running at around 4%, with many forecasters predicting it to go somewhat higher. Could you provide us some background on what's behind the current inflation spike and what global economies are experiencing now? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, a complex issue, of course, but uh, I think there are three key drivers to the situation we, we find ourselves in today. Uh, the first is a, a pandemic uh, effect. Uh, and when I say a pandemic effect, I don't mean just a kind of March 2020 thing. This, this effect has gone on for much longer. And that is that when the pandemic hit, a lot of supply in various uh, industries was shut down uh, almost uh, overnight, overnight, either because companies were responding uh, to the pandemic or mandated by governments to shut down supply chains in the whole uh, lockdown scenario. Um, and demand after the pandemic came back, I think, faster than almost anyone had predicted. And the thing about modern supply chains is they're quite complicated. So semiconductors being uh, the clear runaway example, if you shut down a semiconductor uh, plant, a fab, uh, as it's called, turning it back on again, it's not just a matter of kind of ordering a pint at your, at your local pub. It takes quite a long time to do. So as demand came back really much faster than people were expecting, the supply side of the economy couldn't respond quickly enough uh, to that. And that led to inflationary pressure. Second, there's been a monetary uh, impact. The monetary response to the GFC, as we all know by now, though many predicted it, did not uh, cause uh, inflation. And that's because central bank reserves are not money. It's a, it's a common uh, misconception. So although central bank reserves, because of QE programs, rose uh, really vertiginously, that didn't feed through into real money. This time around, as we all know, governments have been putting money directly into people's pockets, stimulus checks uh, in the US, but similar 
similar piece of policy uh, around the world. So that means just to give you some numbers on that in the US today, if you look at M2 numbers, there are about $22 trillion in the world today that have ever been created. Seven of those, seven trillion of those have come into being since 2020. So we've got about a third of dollars ever created happening since the beginning of 2020. And that's had a, a, a very real impact. Uh, and, and finally, there are just various structural forces which have been bubbling away in the background really for, for, for many years, but have come to the fore recently, given, given the recent shocks. Um, a, a few different things we could talk about if I limit myself to just one. The just-in-time supply chains, which we've seen being developed uh, over many decades uh, um, uh, recently, um, have been really found wanting through, through the pandemic. Um, and we, we're moving from just-in-time supply chains to just-in-case supply chains. So just yesterday, for instance, I noticed um, Porsche and BMW had to close temporarily four plants across Europe. Uh, due to one of their suppliers uh, in Ukraine, which makes the, the plastic harnesses, which holds the electric wiring in their cars, uh, having to stop production due to, due to Russia's invasion. So just a tiny component of the car, that goes and the whole system has to shut down because there's so little room for error baked uh, into those supply chains. So that's been a long-term structural force, and it's really been... Uh, altered by by recent events, and that's caused inflationary pressure. And and uh, definitely um, thinking about just uh, the everyday person and how it impacts them. Higher inflation levels. That is, I, I note that myself this week. I got notice from uh, my gas supplier that uh, my my gas and electric prices will double. Um, over the coming year, and you've talked about Henry about um, uh, car prices, new car prices, and indeed um, second-hand car prices. But how does higher inflation impact people's everyday lives, and what does that impact? We've talked about gas supply, we've talked about car prices, but other impacts. So uh, the bottom line is it impacts people very negatively. Um, three channels. Uh, in which it does that. The first uh, is uh, what Fisher, the, the great 1920s US economist, termed the money illusion. Uh, that is that people, there's, there's quite a delay uh, between people realizing that prices around them are, are rising uh, and them asking for wage increases. And there's actually a further delay between uh, them asking companies giving them those, those wage increases or not. So in real terms, people's wages always fall, often throughout an inflationary regime, but certainly towards the beginning of it. And that means standards of living um, decrease. Um, secondly, ultimately, it affects people's nominal livelihoods as well as their real livelihoods, because recessions almost always follow inflationary regimes. So in our work, we've looked at the eight inflationary regimes before the one we believe we're currently in, in the US over the past 100 years, if we take the most recent five of those, in every single instance, a recession has followed pretty much immediately from the inflation regime, often because the central banks, in order to combat that inflation regime, have to tighten monetary policy uh, quite dramatically. So unemployment rates rise and that affects people badly. And third and finally, doesn't always happen, but quite often inflationary regimes affect people negatively geopolitically. And if we think about what inflation is at its most basic level, it's the problem of too much money chasing too few resources. 
Uh, and that can have an outworking in rising prices, but it can also have an outworking in increased strife. You often get wars and other forms of strife uh, around inflationary uh, regimes. And indeed, currently with the, the tragic situation in Russia and Ukraine, OK, it's not explicitly a fight over resources, but it's hard not to see Russia's timing as coinciding uh, opportunistically from their perspective with the rising gas prices, which uh, mean that Europe's response uh, is is more blunted than it could otherwise be. Yes, and it's an incredibly complex situation that uh, we may touch upon as, as we go through. But just keeping this in the realm of sort of the everyday person and, and how they, you mentioned that there's somewhat of a delay in uh, when they see these prices going up in terms of, you know, the weekly shop and, you know, we've already mentioned uh, energy prices. W where can people look really in terms of consumer prices to, to note these uh, upticks? Where does it happen first? So a, a few areas um, we're looking at, I'll give you three areas we're looking at where we're seeing um, particular pressure. Um, one is uh, in goods. Um, now, for a lot of people, the narrative goes that, OK, 2021 saw huge upward price pressure on goods. Therefore, we must have some sort of um, recovery through 2022. And what's interesting to us is we are not seeing that yet at all. Uh, and with a particular category, which we, what we're watching is clothing or apparel, as, the, as our uh, American friends uh, call it. Now, what's interesting about clothing is there is a very strong seasonal pattern to it. So almost always in January, clothing prices in America and over here in the UK fall. And that's because, of course, after Christmas, all the retailers, they want to get rid of excess stock. They put everything uh, on sale. So on average in America, across the last hundred years of data, clothing prices month on month uh, fall 1.1% through January. This January, we actually saw a two and a half percent increase in those clothing prices. And a man group listening to company earnings calls, a lot of the big clothing retailers, uh, we're hearing them talk about further price rises to come, particularly driven by freight uh, and labor costs. So that narrative of goods prices rolling over, we're we are not yet seeing. And that's worrying. It's one of the key um, buttresses to the transitory inflation argument. And um, second, really important thing uh, is shelter. It's, it's, it's important because it's a massive part of people's uh, consumption. Uh, so it's in, in the US, it's about a third of the CPI basket. Um, and it also tends to turbocharge wage price spirals because, of course, your, your rental payments, your mortgage payments are a significant portion of, of most people's outgoing. So if they start feeling pain there, it's a catalyst for them to, to, to start demanding uh, wage rises. Now, we are starting to see movements uh, in this area. So in the US, uh, shelter is up about 4% uh, year over year. That, that has moved upwards and that is quite high by historic standards, but it could go so much higher. So we watch a number of indicators. For instance, uh, Zillow's new rental agreements metric is up 16% year over year. Now, we wouldn't expect uh, uh, the rental component of CPI to follow that exactly because, of course, this is looking at new rental agreements, whereas CPI is looking at uh, shelter costs across the whole economy. But we would expect some of those those new agreements to start feeding through, uh, and we could we, we're already seeing price pressure, and we could see could see more. And and third and finally, um, energy prices. We're all aware, as you referenced, Tom, those have moved up 
um, significantly in the US energy prices are up 30 uh, percent year over year. And we're interested in this because a lot of people, the similar arguments for goods here, a lot of people say, oh, well, oil's 110 or whatever it is now. So surely it can't go that much higher because it was, you know, last peak was 120 or whatever it was in, in 2012. But we do just note that if we just literally apply uh, CPI inflation to those 2012 highs through to today, we get to an oil price of 170. So up another 50 percent. Now, that's not our base case. But it's it's we, we don't think it's accurate to say, oh, well, we're close to the peak in 2012 and therefore it can't go much higher. There is a pathway where, whereby it can get worse, especially given the situation uh, with Russia. Yes. I mean, I did read in the Financial Times today that commodity prices were at um, record highs since I think it was 2008. That oil price 170 target. Well, that is um, quite worrying. Uh, when I think about the... Um, how wages are keeping up with inflation you know is average wage growth keeping up with inflation levels again there's a pretty short answer to that which is no absolutely not uh so just putting some numbers on that uh in the us wages have risen about five percent over the last 12 months inflation has been seven and a half percent so the average worker in the us has experienced a two and a half percent pay cut in real terms uh, in the UK, a bit less, but similar pattern, wages up 4%, inflation at 5.5%, so 1.5% pay cut in real terms. Let's make no mistake about this. People's standards of living are falling through, through this current inflation regime. And that's really important because even though wages have been pushing higher in, in nominal terms and impacting uh, headline inflation readings, they could go a lot further. Because the question to ask going into the midterms in the US and various elections in Europe is our politicians going to stand for this sort of decline uh, in people's standards of living? Uh, my hunch is, is no. Uh, and that could be uh, a major source of further inflationary pressure going forward. We've successfully outlined the problem. Uh, buying power is down, costs are up across the board. So let's talk about remedies. Uh, from a retail perspective's point of view, uh, where should people really be putting their money during these periods of higher inflation? OK, so I, I'll, I'll have to disappoint you a, a little bit here because I'll get in trouble with my compliance department if I start uh, giving investment advice. So I'm, I'm not going to do that. Um, but what I can do is tell you uh, what has factually performed well historically uh, in, in inflationary regimes. Um, now, as I say, we, we wrote this big paper with Professor Cam Harvey, who's a, a storied academic out in, out in America, on historic inflation regimes, looking at the past 100 years across the US, UK and Japan, um, and had a number of findings. But I'll just point to three things that we found have consistently worked really well. And um, the first is commodities. Uh, in a way, you would expect that because commodities go into the goods that make up uh, the CPI basket, but the uh, extent of that positive performance did surprise us. So in the eight US inflation regimes, commodities in aggregates, this is, this is everything from metals to energies to wheat, etc., uh, run at a 14% real CAGA, so CAGA adjusting for inflation, with a 100% hit rate. Uh, now within commodities, uh, industrials and energies segments perform best, uh, and anything you can eat, 
so agriculturals uh, and livestock, etc., still good, but but slightly worse. And that we think is politicians uh, learning the lesson from Marie Antoinette: don't mess with food prices uh, if you want to keep your heads. Metaphorically speaking, we hope. Uh, second thing, uh, again, kind of obvious, but good to have the numbers on it: uh, tips or um, inflation-protected bonds also perform. Pretty well. I mean, not they're not going to knock the lights out, but they're going to give you about two percent real uh, annualized. Um, we do need to make the point this time around, though, that tips yields today, ten-year tips yield is deeply negative as a starting point in this inflationary regime, which was not the case uh, historically. So we just, we just do need to adjust for that in our thinking. Will it provide the same level of protection today as it has historically? Um, and finally, final thing is trend strategies across all segments of the market. So we constructed uh, a trend strategy which uh, goes across bonds, FX, equities and commodities uh, at a 15% vol, so quite high volatility. That gives you a real CAGR of 25%, again, with 100% uh, positive hit rate across the eight regimes we identified uh, in the US. And the, the qualitative rationale, we think, behind those uh, empirical results for trend, because I know you'll, you'll probably be thinking, yeah, you would say that, your man group, you know, you love trend to the man with the hammer, every problem looks like a nail. But it does have a qualitative backing as well as uh, empirical evidence, which is that we find that in the inflation regime, it's, it is a volatile time for anyone at one security and one asset class individually. But the patterns that we see uh, in an inflation regime do tend to persist. So, for instance, seeing within commodities, seeing industrial metals outperforming uh, agricultural commodities, that tend, there tends to be not much volatility in terms of that relationship moving through the inflation regime. And inflation regimes tend to be relatively long, so almost two years uh, on average. And most trend strategies obviously look back as uh, 12 months or so, so that there's that time for those those patterns to emerge. So those are three things which historically uh, perform relatively well uh, in inflationary regimes. So at the risk of putting words into your mouth, Henry, then uh, you've mentioned a few things like commodities and you mentioned trend strategies. So, you know, is it fair to say then allocating to alternative investments if you're an institutional investor can help to counter higher levels of inflation? Yeah, again, I, I provide that I'm not giving uh, investment advice, uh, but on alternative strategies, historically, I think it very much depends what sort of alternative strategy you're thinking about. So uh, the first thing I say, as I've just mentioned, commodities and trend, those are two alternative strategies uh, which, have, which have done really well historically. Um, real estate, obviously another big category within the uh, alternative universe. And interestingly, we've found it doesn't work as well as one might expect. Certainly residential real estate in this inflation regime has been very strong, both in the, the, the US and the UK. Historically, it's, it's a little bit of a ho-hum. In, in, in real terms, uh, US residential real estate across inflationary regimes was a slight negative. In the UK, a slight positive. In Japan, it was a big positive, but it's biased by periods in the 19, uh, 1980s, inflationary regimes in the 1980s, where, of course, Japan was going through a massive uh, real estate boom, and we all know uh, how that ended. Um, the, the important thing to realise with real estate is 
although it benefits from being a tangible asset, which is uh, a strong quality in an inflationary regime, it does have gearing to the cycle, obviously, because most people buy residential real estate through mortgages. If rates are rising, mortgages become more expensive and uh, that becomes less a less appealing investment decision for people. And also recessions obviously mean defaults are, are, are going to rise. So there are two effects there. Uh, a third kind of category uh, uh, we looked at, you might think this is a, a bit too zany, so stop me if so, but kind of the really esoteric end of the alternative spectrum. So things like art, wine, stamps, collectible um, type categories all tend to work. So over the last hundred years in the eight US inflationary regimes, uh, art does plus 7% real CAGA, uh, wine does plus 5% and stamps do plus 9%. Um, so wine a little bit less than aren't stamps because it's got the added benefit that if it all goes wrong, you can you can always drink it. Well, that's very good news because my uh, uncle is actually an avid stamp collector and he has recently dedicated a second room in his house to stamps. I found out the other day. So maybe that's anecdotal, but it does seem to be that the alt alts are in fashion again. <laughs> there is, of course, I mean, on those more esoteric uh types of markets there are other costs obviously you've got to consider like it's storage cost um uh you know insurance uh and they're not liquid markets either the cost of dedicating two rooms in your house to stamps yeah exactly (laughs) and uh what about hedge funds i mean you've talked about the strategies but um you know what i'm reading about henry is that you know investors are looking to hedge funds and different types of strategies that you know uh, are on offer from hedge funds to help navigate the higher inflationary period. You know, we look at performance of hedge funds, um, albeit it's only you know one month in so far, but numbers for February suggest that hedge funds have done quite well, albeit it's not just a higher inflationary environment are working in it as well. We are also, um, sadly, you know, uh, working through a war period as well. But looking at just the high inflation period, historically, have hedge funds done well? Uh, investor that is allocating to hedge funds, have they managed their portfolio well? I mean, for hedge funds specifically, the answer is we don't really know because the, the data, if you look, you know, the HFR um, X indices, they just don't go back far enough to, to know that the, whether the peer group has performed well or badly given as you say, we haven't had many inflation regimes uh, in, in recent history. What we can comment on is how uh, various longshore equity strategies w- have performed within those inflation regimes, which does give us some clue, because of course, longshore equity, uh, bread and butter for, for, for many hedge funds. If I just focus on um, three areas, the first is cross-sectional momentum. Here we, we see a very similarly positive effect as we did for trend on a cross-asset basis. So cross-sectional momentum in US uh, equities does plus 8% uh, real annualized uh, in inflationary regimes. Um, and again, we, we think there's a similar quality of backing here because we see through inflation regimes, uh, the companies that perform well keep performing well and the companies that perform badly keep performing badly. So for instance, gold miners tend to do really well uh, in inflation regimes, regimes and software companies tend to do pretty badly. And that effect tends to be consistent through the regime. So it, 
benefits, um, kind of cross-sectional momentum type strategies. Um, second is size as a factor, large caps. If you're long, large caps, short, uh, small caps, that's a good place to be or has been a good place to be uh, historically. And the logic behind that is if you go back to your kind of economics 101, uh, costs of inflation, uh, remember there's a number of different things, but for instance, menu costs, which is the cost of you just have to like, if prices are moving much more, you have to reprint, if you're a restaurant, reprint the menus more often. Um, and bigger companies have an economies of scale benefit whereby they've got the infrastructure uh, such that they can respond better to, to those costs than, than smaller companies. And the final thing uh, I would point to is on value strategies. So value, uh, long, short, long, cheap companies, short, expensive companies. That's a strategy which there's a lot of uh, anecdotes and rhetoric about how that should perform really well in an inflation regime. And we, and we, we get the logic because uh, a low PE stock is essentially a short duration stock. And duration is bad in inflation, obviously, because you're locking yourself in to a, to a nominal payment uh, for longer, which is going to be uh, deflated by that by that inflation. Um, so short duration, so so it should be positive. But also, we find it's actually kind of more like zero through through an inflation regime. That's because there's a second uh, impact uh, of value, which is a kind of gearing to the cycle. You think value companies are often companies which do well in a in a cyclical upturn, and the market we think does start to look forward to the eventual negative repercussions uh, of, of the inflation regime, which, as I've already mentioned, uh, often involve uh, a recession towards the end of it. AIMER is pleased to announce the inaugural Cybertech Forum 2022, a half-day virtual event which will be taking place on Wednesday the 20th of April. Join us to gain insights into all cyber and technology related developments impacting the alternative management industry and critical themes in cyber risk and resilience. The half-day event will showcase an array of premium content. Topics will include the cyber and operational resilience regulatory landscape, technology due diligence, and new and emerging technologies up for discussion, as well as an opportunity for delegates to ask questions of the speakers. Register now to gain a greater insight into how technological advances are shaping the alternative investment industry, both today and in the coming years. To learn more, visit AIMA.org and navigate to the events pages. And my ears are just pricked there because you mentioned gold, which is the perfect segue for my question, which I am most keen to ask you, which is around this conversation that has been going on for some years now about how crypto assets are being touted as sort of the new the new inflation hedge, the new digital gold. And, and, and that argument seemed to have some merit in some circles in prior years, but now the rubber meets the road. And so far, crypto assets have not performed comparative to gold so far this year, at least. Can you help me understand what is going on here? Yeah, so we too are interested in this whole debate around is Bitcoin uh, an inflationary hedge? Uh, the short answer is we don't know, but we don't have enough data. So we've got about 10 years reliable data with Bitcoin. Uh, in our work, we think there has been zero inflation regimes uh, in the US in that in that time. Um, we can say 
three things, though. Um, the first is that in this inflation regime, which we date from the start of March uh, last year, um, gold hasn't really worked either. Certainly, so it's just starting to work recently, but it hasn't been consistent with what we've seen historically. So historically, gold is about plus 13 percent real CAGR and inflationary uh, regime. In this regime thus far, it's done about plus four. Uh, and that's only because of the recent uh, rally in, in gold markets. So it could be that Bitcoin and other crypto assets are to some extent stealing some of some of gold's lunch, given how much chatter there is around Bitcoin as digital gold. Um, I personally am not so convinced uh, by that for two reasons. Um, first, Bitcoin also has performed pretty poorly uh, in this inflationary regime. So in real terms, it's on about minus 16% uh, annualized. So uh, if it is an inflation hedge thus far, it's not working that well. Uh, and secondly, um, th there is like, we're not, we don't nail our, our colors to the mark. I mean, our base case is for, for more inflation as a, as a team, but we're very data dependent. And there is a credible pathway whereby, you know, the situation in Russia calms down. There's an oil deal with Iran. Um, supply chains come back online faster than people are expecting. And, you know, inflation really, really goes away. That's, that's, that's a credible uh, argument to make. So with an inflation hedge, what you want is something which isn't going to kill you if inflation doesn't happen or, or, or moderates um, significantly. And with Bitcoin, you've got zero carry and volatility of about 100%. So there are many good reasons, I think, to, to hold Bitcoin as there is evidence that it can act as a portfolio diversifier. Uh, but personally, I don't think uh, an inflation hedge vehicle is one of those reasons. How long do you expect this period of higher inflation to continue, Henry? I mean, we have, you know, as mentioned, this ongoing crisis in the Ukraine. You know, we've talked about oil prices being at $116 per barrel and, and, and your forecast that potentially it could go much higher, you know, and, and mentioning also that this move is likely reflected even higher food prices. It's making the cost of living even higher. You know, equity markets are being challenged you know and, and and normally in higher periods of inflation you have central banks coming in and taking action but do you think that they will do so um you know how long do you think this is likely to continue That's it. and to take the first part of your question first we think that this inflation regime is going to be a lot more persistent than the market is currently pricing for so uh, our model suggests u.s headline cpi will be 5.7 percent uh, over the next 12 months. So clearly that is a rollover from the current rates of 7.5%, but not nearly as much of a rollover as the market is expecting. Just to give you some numbers uh, on that, if you look at the kind of range of other forward pricing indicators, so surveys, derivative markets, and so forth, they range uh, over the next 12 months between 1.8 and 6%. So our models are right at the top, uh, top end of, of that range. Um, and to, to, to take the second part of your question, uh, yes, I think they will continue. Uh, the, the central banks will continue to, certainly in America, will continue to, to tighten uh, as, as expected, largely because I think they will have to. So even if the Russia situation resolves uh, faster than expected, I still think you go back to an environment where inflation uh, is a concern. We've got to remember inflation and central bank tightening was a concern well before the Russia situation got underway at the beginning of the year. 
uh, through January. Um, and we've been thinking quite a bit about the, uh, the 9-11 uh, analogue. So um, it's interesting, in the 12 months um, before the planes uh, hit the Twin Towers on that, on that tragic day, uh, the market was actually down 27%. Of course, you had the dot-com bust going on, people's fears uh, of a recession. Um, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, in the space of three or four days, the market fell 13% pretty vertiginously um, as people worried that we'd never be able to fly again and, you know, terrorists uh, potentially everywhere and so forth. As that got cleared up, there was a very strong relief rally. Um, so through to March 2002, the market then rallied about 21%. Um, but at that point, what was interesting is the market then re-remembered what it was worried about in the first place, which was these uh, overly inflated valuations for, for tech stocks and the potential for recession and so forth. And then the market rolled over again and indeed fell a further 34% through to October 2002. So even if we do get a kind of sudden resolution of the Ukraine um, situation and we get this relief rally, you know, you could have quite a significant relief rally there, but then we think the market re-remembers those inflationary concerns and the, and the central banks uh, will be forced to act. And the final thing is, I, I do just think the central banks uh, are really are wary of the unanchoring of inflation expectations. Uh, so we look at the uh, University of Michigan inflation expectations. We take the average of the one year and the five to 10 year surveys. That's at about 4%, which is a full point and a half uh, higher than its normal level prior to the to the pandemic. So we think that threat is very real. Central banks uh, are very aware of it and will need to respond to it. And we've mentioned the UK and America a lot there, but the world is much larger. Uh, I mentioned at the top of the episode that uh, UK inflation is around 4%. I think the US, depending on who you ask, is around 7% maybe, which is for someone under 40 is red hot. Uh, but of course, there are many other markets in the world today and in prior years where that was a blip. So so just taking a slightly wider view, uh, for example, I, I read the other day that, that Turkey was at 54%, if you can believe that. Are there any other markets that you pay particular attention to? Uh, I imagine those are related to commodities in some sense, but um, yeah, could you just give us a, an overview of what other areas are, are maybe canaries in the coal mine? Yeah, so in terms of uh, internationally, what, what I'm really interested uh, to watch are countries uh, where we haven't yet seen that inflationary pressure uh, feeding through into, into, um, into these sticker shock uh, readings. Because I think that when they start to move, then we really will start to know that this is this is becoming entrenched and broad based. Um, and there's two areas really where, which I'm watching quite closely. Um, the first is Japan, where we're not, you know, as we know, it's been like the, the, the figurehead for the secular stagnation uh, narrative over the past uh, couple of decades. Uh, and we're still yet to see much movement there in, in terms of price rises. So uh, on a core basis, we're still at minus 2% pretty much. Uh, year over year in Japan. So that has not moved yet. Uh, and I'm watching that closely. And the second thing is, you, you, I mean, you mentioned Turkey um, and Brazil, similarly, some areas of emerging markets experiencing really, really quite hot inflation. Um, but there are other areas, particularly China and India, where they're certainly not in deflation, 
But the inflation readings they're getting uh, are not particularly notable relative uh, to, to, to where they usually are through history. So similarly with Japan, I'm watching I'm watching China and India just to see uh, whether that inflationary pressure we're seeing uh, in the West moves moves over. That's interesting. So it's actually a case of uh, we know it gets serious when it hits markets like Japan rather than early warning. So, of course, where uh, where inflation goes, rate hikes, at least in prior cycles, quickly followed. If I think back as far as January, which in some sense seems like a lifetime ago already, uh, Goldman Sachs, Stink came out with the highest number that I saw, but many analysts were talking upwards of five hikes starting in March, which I think has now been confirmed that it at least will start somewhat. But more recent events in Ukraine and obviously the, the global implications have dampened or, or changed that view somewhat. Where are we now? This is obviously very fluid, but you know I, I won't call you to, on this in, in a few weeks time or even a few days time. But in terms of right now, where are we on that spectrum? Yeah, so the, the short answer is uh, in America, certainly, uh, I don't think it's had uh, a meaningful impact. So to put the numbers on it, uh, at the start of the year, derivatives markets were pricing in three Fed rate hikes. Um, up to the 11th of February, which is where you'll remember Biden made that speech saying essentially Russia is, is going to invade. That's basically where we date the start of the, the Russia-Ukraine tensions. Um, that number had moved up to 6.4 hikes uh, in the end. That, I think, quite strongly makes the point uh, that the inflationary story was well entrenched prior to Russia's invasion uh, of Ukraine. Um, today, or when I checked uh, yesterday, it was at six. So the, the Russia situation has priced out 0.4 of a hike uh, in the US. So essentially uh, not much. Now, maybe in Europe, it, it does a bit more just because they're closer uh, to the action. But ultimately, I think the, the world uh, and certainly financial markets follow uh, America's lead rather than Europe's. Sad though it is to say. And Henry, given all the exogenous factors that currently are in play at the moment, as well as all the noise by the various marketing commentators, what uh, data points would you be using to model over the next six to 12 months in terms of managing inflation for your clients? So there's a whole load of things uh, I think you can do based on uh, the historical data. I think the three uh, key ones, um, the first is cutting long only risk parity type uh, structures. So, you know, derivatives of 60-40 and, and similar type strategies uh, have done, have served people incredibly well over uh, recent decades, uh, really. And that's largely because since about 2003, stock-bond correlations, as we all know, have been uh, negative through much of uh, at least the Western world. Um, and it, it really is worth saying, a lot of people know this, but for those who don't, that that is uh, an historically atypical phenomena. So using the Bank of England data, you can go right back 250 years, and you can see that for the, the large majority of the time, stock-bond correlations uh, are significantly positive. So this incredible diversification benefit managers have been rise, riding uh, in the past few decades where both equities and bonds have, have moved up together, but have done so at, at different times, which has uh, been really good for sharp ratios. Uh, there is no reason that that 
should continue from a historical perspective. And indeed, what we tend to see in historic inflationary regimes is as that regime becomes entrenched, the stock-bond correlation uh, rises. So that's one key thing. Second thing uh, is to add commodities. Uh, talking about that's a, historically been a very reliable performer uh, in inflationary regimes. Uh, last year, when we looked at the world's top 20 asset holders, the big sovereign wealth funds uh, and so forth, uh, we found their commodity allocation in aggregate was less than 1%. And it's understandable given that um, for quite some time, commodities have, have really underperformed, uh, but we think probably uh, that needs to change. And the, the, the final thing is within bond portions uh, of portfolios to cut duration and to cut credit risk. Um, and both of those things, both duration, taking duration risk and taking credit risk, have been really popular, again, over, over the prior few decades. And particularly in recent times on the duration front, we saw lots of countries, Austria, I think most famously, uh, releasing 100-year bonds uh, and, and significant demand for, for that kind of issuance. Uh, we think that's that's a really bad place to be if, if we are and continue to be in an inflation regime. Uh, and on the credit side of things, um, we're aware of the pattern of a lot of credit benchmarks being degraded in quality terms. So, uh, for instance, Triple B has gone from about 25% uh, of IG benchmarks in 1990 to about 50% today. And that's also reflected in a lot of uh, portfolios, people taking more credit risk. Uh, in an inflation regime, credit is credit risk is not a good thing um, to be taking, and so um, it's a consideration that that one should reduce that. Well, Henry, this has been absolutely fascinating, and and just hearing about all the ways in which someone like yourself and and all the teams at Man Group. Uh, look to obviously apply lessons from the past and, and modeling using data available to navigate this period and all the novel challenges that are coming when when old models don't work and uh, when you overlay aspects such as uh, new asset classes like crypto and how they are faring in their first rodeo of, of somewhat higher inflation. Um, there seems to be a lot of lessons to learn here and, and, and clearly this is something that uh, will be ongoing for, for many weeks and months and it'll be so interesting to see how this plays out. You mentioned earlier that you've done a number of research pieces on inflation so far. Uh, just could you let our listeners know where they can find these? Sure. So, uh, yeah, my, my team has like a kind of microsite on the Man Group website. Um, if you type www.man.com forward slash DNA, which is our team name, a slightly tenuous acronym for dynamic allocation. See what I did there? Um, then you'll find uh, all our stuff. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the long short this week. And uh, I think all that's left is to, to wrap up there. Thanks very much, guys. A pleasure. Thank you, Henry. The long short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to the long short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening.